0: amen we're going to jump right back into where we left off last week in the book of Revelation as we continue our sermon series Christ the the, the Conquering King and we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12 uh, today uh, this is one of probably the key passages key chapters of scripture in, in all of revelation but but also in, in all of uh, the Bible, because it shows us the reality of the spiritual war that rages all around us and has raged all around us since the fall of man. And so, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Revelation chapter 12. Now, what we're going to find in Revelation 12 is we're going to find we're going to start by by looking backwards. Uh, And then we're going to look forwards and we'll see what the present implications and applications there are for the truths that are found in Revelation chapter 12. Now, there's a lot of symbolism in Revelation chapter 12. And really what we have to do on the front end is identify three key figures that are in the first five verses of Revelation 12. So we're going to read Revelation 12. We're going to really zero in on those three key figures because that's going to help us to ascertain uh, exactly what is transpiring in the rest of Revelation chapter 12. And then we're going to look forward to what is going to happen at the abomination of desolations. That is when the Antichrist sets himself up as God in the rebuilt temple and what transpires after that. So, we're going to look into the past. We're going to look into the future, and we're going to see what implications and applications it has for us today. If you would, follow with me as we read along in God's holy word, Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast him to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the blood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now may God bless the reading of his word you may say, what in the world is going on? We got dragons and we got a woman and there's labor going on and there's a river like a torrent of a flood swallowed up by the earth. What in the world is going on? Well, the first verse gives us a key indication when it says, and a great sign appeared. So we know there's a lot of symbolism that is in this passage of Scripture, but God's Word never leaves us guessing. This is too important of a passage of Scripture. It is going to show us who these individuals are, and we'll start by looking at the three primary figures. However, I want us to understand something that I think that we have heard before, but I pray that will be sealed in our hearts and in our lives as we get ready to leave here today After our service. And that is that we are in a spiritual war. There is a spiritual world that is around us that we cannot see, but we do experience and feel. Amen. There is a spiritual war around us. Albert Einstein was once asked at a dinner party, what would be the weapons used in the third world war? And Albert Einstein's response was, I know not what weapons will be used in the third war, but I know in the fourth war that follows, the weapons will be sticks and stones. In other words, what is going to transpire, the, 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 the sheer carnage of the next world war which more than likely will use weapons the world has not experienced on the scale that it has not experienced, atomic bombs and many nations using them. What we have seen, World War III has already happened at this point in time of the Great Tribulation. He says, I don't know what weapons will be used in the Third World War, but society and the carnage that the Third World War will bring, I guarantee you, in the Fourth fourth World War, it'll be sticks and stones, because the earth will have been decimated. But what God's Word tells us in Ephesians 6, 12, it says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against the powers and the principalities of this dark age. He says, listen, there there are going to be wars... That are gonna come. We see wars here in the Great Tribulation, but understand that these nations that are waging these wars have a demonic spirit, Satan and his minions that are behind them to bring them to those points. Second Corinthians 10:3 through 4 says this: our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh. We have weapons, spiritual weapons that have been given to us as the church to wage war in this spiritual battlefield that we find ourselves in, and they are powerful to demolish strongholds. Now, as we will see this unpacked, what we are seeing is really the description of the spiritual war that has been transpiring since the fall of man. Now, the first individual that we are introduced to in this passage of scripture that we need to identify is a woman. We read of this woman that uh, she was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Now, really, there are uh, individuals that would look at this woman and would take maybe the position that the the Catholic Church would take, and they would say, "Well, this is Mary, the, the, this woman in verses two and and three. Uh, th- this is this is Mary. That that is the position that the Catholic Church would would hold." But what we see is ultimately there is a bigger picture. This is on a cosmic scale, right? This is on a cosmic scale. This is looking at a cosmic conflict. This is not Mary. Now, some individuals would say the woman is the church. But we also need to understand that uh, this this woman, uh, and and we'll we'll jump ahead uh, just a little bit, spoiler alert, the, the male child is Jesus. The church didn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus gave birth to the church. This is not the church. This woman represents the nation of Israel in which the Messiah would come from. The Messiah would come from the nation of Israel. That The, the promised seed that was given to, to Eve, remember, uh, says that your seed will have enmity against uh, uh, his, uh, 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 her seed. Well, that, that word seed... Uh, If you've had biology at all, you know that that women don't have seed. They have eggs. That word seed is singular and masculine in the Hebrew, and it is a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah. So the, the woman is the chosen people of destiny. The woman represents the nation of Israel. When... This symbolism is utilized. We see that this woman is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, the crown of 12 stars. In Genesis 37, 9, we see Joseph coming to his brothers and to his parents after he had already given them a a picture. of After he had already talked about a dream of the stalks of wheat bowing down to him. In Genesis 37, 9, we read this. Then he dreamed another dream and told to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, he is a star, so 12 stars. Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, this is a a picture of the fulfillment of the covenant that had been established by God with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, who would wrestle with God and be called Israel. So this, this woman, it is a reference to, to this dream right here where we see the nation of Israel is pictured. Now, the nation of Israel has a promised future. Israel has a promised future. In Genesis twelve three, we read God telling the, subsequently the nation of Israel as a whole that I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, these are a chosen people. Now, they weren't chosen to the neglect of everybody else. They were chosen to be a blessing to everybody else, to be a light unto the nations, to call individuals to the one true, holy, triune God. But they have a promised future. There are covenants that have been established with Israel that the church has not replaced. The the Bible, many individuals hold to a replacement theology. The Bible does not teach that the church has replaced Israel. We're we're not the new Israel. There, There are covenants that have been established with Israel. A covenant of land, a Davidic covenant. Uh, that uh, the throne of David would never would never cease. That Messiah would would reign, and that that is talking about an earthly reign as well. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There are these covenants that are established with Israel that does not pertain to the church. There are really two schools of thought, and I won't get too far into this, but. You have a lot of individuals that adhere to this covenant theology, and then you have, on this other side, individuals that hold to dispensations. Meaning that, that throughout the Bible, there have been various dispensations where God has dealt with His people and called them to be obedient to certain things at certain times. The, the, the covenant theologians, oftentimes they teach a replacement the, theology. And for all the Reformers, uh, what they got right, there's a lot of things that that they they brought over from the Catholic Church that they were trying to break away from. And one of those was the idea of the covenant theology, which is how they got the basis of infant baptism. Because to them, infant baptism is related to the Hebrew uh, covenant of circumcision. And so they see infant baptism on par with circumcision. They didn't want to keep circumcising people, so they said, We're, we'll, we'll just say baptism is circumcision now. And that is the sign of a, a child that is underneath the, the, the grace of God. And that, that is borrowed from this idea of this covenant theology that uh, propagates a replacement theology. But Israel has a promised future. And God will honor that. God is not going to... Well, because how can we have any faith in the fact that he won't change the church And all the promises of the church will give over to somebody else. You don't have that assurance. If he can do that to Israel, he can do that to the church. But he won't do that to Israel, so therefore he won't do it to the church. And that gives us assurance of our salvation and assurance of the promises of God that are given to us. Israel is persecuted fully. Israel is persecuted fully. We see that in this picture of this dragon who is standing before the woman, verse number uh, uh, three. He's standing before the woman who is about to give birth to to Jesus. The Messiah was going to come from the line of, of Israel so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Listen, that's been going on ever since the fall of man. The devil is trying to disrupt the plan of God Almighty. Think about the nation of Israel. Now, you've got other cultures that have been uh, around since ancient times. You think about the Chinese and you think about India. Together, you're talking about billions and billions of people. I think it's estimated that the Jewish nation comprises of like 15 million have, have, the, have the Chinese and have the Indians ever been persecuted to the degree that the Jews have been persecuted? No. Why is that? Nobody's mad at Australia. You know what I'm saying? No, no, nobody's trying to decimate. Nobody's putting the Australians in gas chambers. Because from the very beginning, the devil has persecuted the Jews and has persecuted the Jews to a fullness. The Jews have been persecuted underneath Pharaoh, underneath Nebuchadnezzar, underneath Alexander the Great, underneath Nero, underneath uh, other Roman emperors, underneath the Turks in the Ottoman Empire, underneath Russia, uh, uh, even Christians in the times of the Crusades. And then we think about the gas chambers of Hitler. We think about all of the terrorist organizations, Hezbollah, and we think of Al-Qaeda. We think of individuals in Iran that want to wipe Israel off of the face of the earth. Many Arab nations don't even include Israel on their maps. Where does it come from? Where where does that anti-Semitism come from? It comes from a spirit of Satan that wants to attack God, his people, and his plan. Because ultimately, the Messiah was to come through the line of Israel. And those who bless the nation of Israel will be blessed. And those who curse the nation of Israel, they will be cursed. Israel, however, will give a profession of faith. There is a national repentance in a national profession of faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is to come. That is promised in God's word. You can write this down uh, in the margins of your notes. Uh, Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. Hosea 2 verses 14 through 16. Zechariah 12 verses 10 through 14. Let me give you one in the New Testament, Romans 11, 26 through 27. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So we see, first off, this woman is a nation of Israel, the chosen people of destiny. They have a God-given destiny that God will fulfill and honor to them as a nation. And ultimately, they will repent of their sins. They will recognize Christ as the Messiah, and they will be saved. Secondly, we're introduced to this red dragon. Verse 3 says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Now, ultimately, what this is speaking of, the, the seven heads and the ten horns, I don't want to get into too much. We're going to look in detail uh, at the Antichrist uh, uh, um, next week. But we see Satan in this picture of Satan with these uh, seven heads and uh, uh, these ten horns and these seven diadems, they really speak of uh, this reality of uh, these, these nations, these original ten kingdoms of which uh, three were subdued by the little horn of Daniel 7-8. So the Antichrist is going to have a conglomeration of ten nations. Uh, he's going to rise up through the ranks of those ten nations. Ultimately, he's going to come into power because he's going to subdue three of them. We'll, we'll see that when you compare this passage of Scripture to Revelation 13, you'll, you'll, you'll see that reality that uh, he now has seven horns, and, and that speaks of uh, the three that were, were plucked out uh, in Daniel 7. You can go and read about that. But the, the, the seven heads, it really talks about the seven uh, great world empires that have ever existed. Well, six that have existed and one that is to come. Uh, the Assyrian Empire, the Egyptian Empire... The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the, the Greek Empire, and the, the Roman Empire. Those are the six great uh, uh, powers that have at one point in time really ruled all of the, the known world. Hitler tried, but, but, but he, was, he was thwarted, praise God. Uh, but there is coming another kingdom that is going to be a world kingdom, and that is the the rebuilt, that is uh, the the, the, uh, the new Roman Empire that will come, and we'll look more into that next week. It is a fascinating uh, study of what is actually going on around us right now that we see being played out uh, all uh, around us, what this new Babylon will be, this rebuilt Roman Empire. And so this this red dragon, it's easy to understand who the red dragon is, because if you look at verse 9 of Revelation 12, it says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So the red dragon is is Satan. It's given to us even in this passage of Scripture. And so the red dragon is the cast-down prince of darkness. So we have the chosen people of destiny, and now we're introduced to the cast-down prince of darkness. Evil manifest in and of itself in complete rebellion against God. Now, we read uh, uh, about what is mentioned in verse 4, where this great red dragon was thrown down and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast him to the earth. And now the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. And so now we see this, this picture, this, this fall, this casting down of Satan from heaven. Satan was uh, ultimately the, the highest cherubim in God's creation. And he was created perfect, but out of the exercise of his free will, there was evil found in him, rebellion found in him. And as a result, he was cast down from heaven by God Almighty. Now, th- this fall of Satan, this casting down of Satan, is mentioned very clearly in 2 Peter 2.4. It's talked about very clearly in Jude 6. Myself and many other interpreters would look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and the lamentations on the kings of Tyre and Babylon and say the, the, the language there goes far beyond a human individual. In fact, it talks about in Ezekiel 28 about the king of Tyre that he was in the Garden of Eden. Well, we know the king of Tyre in that day had never been in the Garden of Eden because the Garden of Eden is long gone by that time. So we see that this is a picture in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 of Satan before he was cast down and then him being cast down. And ultimately, it can be said about those earthly two kings and all kings and all individuals that have been in opposition against God Almighty, that the spirit behind that is the spirit of Satan. Now, the purpose of the dragon is to frustrate the redemptive purpose of God and, if possible, to destroy the work of God. Now, he sweeps a third of the angels down with him, and they become demons. And these demons are part of the spiritual war that that we experience. Now, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot be possessed by a demon. You can be oppressed by a demon, but you can't be possessed by a demon. Now, if you're not in Christ Jesus, listen, demon possession is real. Demons are real. Sometimes, especially in the Baptist church, we don't want to talk about the spiritual side of things. We don't want to talk about the war that is going on around us. We don't want to talk about the fact that there are actually demonic activities that are going on all around us. And if we're not careful, we can open ourselves up to demonic activity in our lives. We must guard our hearts and our ears and our eyes and our minds from these various schemes of the enemy. Now, he sweeps a third of the angels down with him. Now, if that concerns you, let me give you a little bit of heart. There's two-thirds of them that stayed true to God. So for every demon, there's two angels, amen? Amen. Beyond that, let me give you even more encouragement. For every demon and for Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet that is to come, there is a Messiah, and his name is Jesus, and they ain't ever going to beat him. So we got two angels for every demon, and we got Jesus. Fear not. Let us live our faith out even in this broken, fallen world of spiritual war knowing that we have victory in Christ Jesus and he who began a good work in us will see it to the completion and he has given us weapons that are powerful to demolish strongholds in our lives and the lives of others and the lives of those that are outside of the church as well as they place their faith and trust in Christ. Now, we see in verses 7 and 9... Uh, we see another casting down. In fact, I would say this. In verses 7 and 9 of our text today, Satan, sadden. Sad. <laughs> yep, you yep, have him too. Uh, or in the, the words of Wreck-It Ralph, Satan. Uh, Satan is cast out. Satan is, is, is cast out of heaven in a way that is somewhat of a mystery. Even though he has been cast down, he has been removed from his privileged place in heaven, he still has limited access to heaven. In a way that I don't fully understand, in a way that is somewhat mysterious, he still has limited access to heaven. And in verses 7 and 9, we read that this limited access is going to be cut off one day. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, what does he do in his limited access to God in heaven is he accuses the brothers, He accuses the believers. He accuses you and me day and night before God Almighty. You see what they were thinking in the middle of church? You see what they were thinking two days ago? You see what they were watching the other day? These supposedly your children. You see how they're behaving? You see what he said? You see what she thought? You see what he did? And that gnarled... Uh, finger of Satan is always being pointed at us to uh, accuse us before God Almighty, and one day that is going to be, he is going to be removed from that, that privilege is going to be no more for him, and we see the fact that he is going to be cast out. Now, here's the good news. You have an accuser, but you also have an advocate. We talked about this last week. You have an accuser, you have a prosecuting attorney, but you've got a defense attorney, And his name is Jesus. And he protects us and he guards us. He leads us. And so we see that Satan is cast out from this limited access that he has to God Almighty in verses 7 through 9. But we also see Satan's character. So this individual who is waging war, who is behind all of uh, the spiritual warfare against God's people, against the church, and against the Jews... Is Satan, and we get a glimpse of his character in in verse 9. In verse 9, he's given this litany of descriptions. He is the devil. That means accuser. He is the accuser. And Satan, that means adversary. Anybody that is uh, working as an adversary against God and against his mission ultimately is in line with Satan, the great adversary of God Almighty, the one who is trying to stand in between God and his people, God and his plan, God and his children. Satan is that adversary. He is the deceiver of the whole world. He's a murderer, and he is a liar, and he has been that from the very beginning. He is a deceiver of the whole world. He is an accuser. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's an adversary. He's a murderer and has been from the very beginning. But let me tell you something else. He is defeated. He has no power over you. We are victorious in Christ Jesus. So we see this red dragon. He is cast out. He, we see his character. And now we see Satan's conflict in verses 13 through 17. So he wasn't able to stop the Messiah from coming. And so now we see that there is coming a time where he is cast out. Now, I don't know if that's at the very beginning of the Great Tribulation. I don't know if that's halfway through the Great Tribulation. But sometime in between the rapture of the church and the abomination of desolation is when Satan loses his limited access to accuse the brothers day and night uh, in, in, in heaven. He loses that, that access. And we read in verses 13 through 17, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, a time, and a half a time. That's the same thing as the 1,260 days up in verse 6. That's three and a half years. For a a time and times and half a time, the serpent poured water like a river out of the mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Now, this idea of uh, it's not literal, it's not a literal flood. In fact, in the Old Testament times, large armies were uh, referenced or were symbolically sometimes referred to as floods. We're referred to as large moving bodies of, of water. So what we see is that there is a, a, an army of individuals that are, are pursuing the woman, pursuing the Jews, the nation of Israel. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we see that there's this, this conflict. Now, let me try to put this in as best of uh, a, a framework chronologically as I possibly can. Three and a half years, the Antichrist, who we're going to be introduced to next week, the Antichrist sets himself up as God in the temple. That's the abomination of desolations. Matthew 24, Jesus says, when that day comes, you better flee. You, you, better, you better run. And you better hope that you're not pregnant in in that time because it's going to be a difficult journey. They're going to flee to the mountains, and then they're going to flee into the wilderness where they'll be nourished for three and a half years. So he sets himself up as God. Jews recognize this. They flee in a supernatural way. They are guarded and they are protected. Verse 14 says, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle. Now I've heard people say that these are airlifts of the American army because our national bird, we're associated with the eagle. That that's us, that they're going to get on big transport planes and then, and, and then we're going we're to fly them to, to, to safety. I, I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think what this is talking about is a reference to a supernatural provision by God for his people. It's not talking about literal uh, planes that the American army is going to be providing. Exodus 194 says this: "You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself." Uh, listen, in Exodus 194, I can guarantee you, they didn't have transport planes. But they were still bore up on the the wings of eagles. In other words, God uh, providentially uh, protected them in a supernatural way and delivered them. Deuteronomy 32 9 11 says this but the Lord's portion is his people Jacob is allotted heritage he found him in a desert land and in the howling wastes of the wilderness he encircled him he cared for him he kept him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flot- flutters over its young spreading out its wings catching them bearing them up on its pinions It's a picture of just God supernaturally delivering his people, supernaturally delivering the nation of Israel. Now, where are they going to flee? Well, they're going to flee into Jordan. They're going to flee into southern Jordan. They're going to flee into the the, the land in uh, the days of of, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were Edom. Uh, They're going to flee into what is modern-day Jordan. Many individuals say they will flee to uh, a, a fortress city called Petra. Some of you may have seen pictures of Petra. Some of you may even been to Petra. It's this beautiful city. If you remember uh, Indiana Jones and the, um, uh, the last crusade when they first kind of go in to uh, uh, the little cavernous deal you know, at the very end. And, and they're going to go in and he's going to go uh, through the various aspects to get to the crusader at, at, the, at the Holy Grail. Uh, if you remember, that, that's a picture of Petra. That's not what it looks like on the inside. They took a little licensing with, with that, right? Uh, but uh, that, that's Petra. In fact, there are so many people that believe that the Jews will flee to Petra, that individuals that go, Christians that go and visit it now will hide uh, passages of Scripture in the rocks, they'll hide Bibles in the rocks, they'll hide tracts into the rocks, so that when the Jews flee there, they'll be able to have various gospel presentations or they'll be able to have the Word of God so that they will know the truth and they will place their faith and truth in Jesus Christ. Maybe? I know it's in that area. Can I tell you where? I I, I, I think there may be some Jews that end up in Petra. Petra's not that big for as many Jews to support as many Jews that I think is going to flee there. I think what God's Word teaches is definitely in that area, but the majority of them are going to find themselves in a city called Basra. that God's Word talks about this, this town called Basra. And... When he returns, Christ is going to first return in Basra. Now, a lot of people say, well, I think he's going to return to the Mount of Olives, right, because that's where he ascended and and, and that's where he's going to return. Well, Acts 1, 10, 11 is where people pull that from. But if you read Acts 1, 10 through 11 closely, it never says that he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. It just says in the same manner, in the same way he left, he will return. In other words, he's going to come back in the clouds. He was caught up in the clouds. He's going to return in the clouds. Acts 1, 10 and 11 says this. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Well, because I just saw Jesus go up. Like, that's a weird question. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way, not to the same place will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Zechariah fourteen two talks about in the abomination of desolation half the Jews will flee into Jordan half of the Jews will stay. But Isaiah sixty three one through six says this: Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? Now. This same depiction of Scripture, when we look in uh, Revelation 19, you're going to see a lot of symbolism. Now, the context of Isaiah 63 is there's a watchman on the walls of Jerusalem and he's watching and waiting for God to return. That's the context, that there is a global judgment that is taking place, and there's a watchman on the walls of Jerusalem, and he is watching for the deliverance from the Messiah to come to Jerusalem. And he says, who is this that comes from Edom? That's modern-day Jordan. Who is this that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Now, when Jesus returns, he's, he's treading in the winepress of his wrath. I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples, no one who is with me. Now, listen, we'll be following him, but we won't be fighting with Jesus. He doesn't need our help. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered upon my garments and stained all my apparel. Now, when Jesus returns, he's in a white robe, but what what is caked at the bottom of his white robe? The blood of his enemies. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now, only the Messiah can say that. Only Christ can. And this man on the wall of Jerusalem, he sees, who's this coming from? Edom?" He's already got the blood of many of his foes on his garments. Zechariah 12, 7-9 says this, And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. To the tents of Judah first. the, 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 The word here in the Hebrew for tents is talking about a nomadic dwelling. Now, we know the Jews for three and a half years have been nourished out in the wilderness. They're living in a very nomadic lifestyle. And God's word says that the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first before the individuals that are in Jerusalem. He makes his way through the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of Jezreel, where he will defeat Satan once and for all. Then he will stand victoriously on the Mount of Olives, and the city will split into two at that point in time. And the individuals that are still trapped in there by the remaining satanic army, will come and flee out. And Jesus comes in through the eastern wall that they tried to wall up, but actually fulfill prophecy when they did. And he will vanquish all of his enemies. Then there will be a separation of the sheep and the goats at that point in time. And then there will be a 70-day period of cleansing. And then the inauguration of the 1,000-year thousand, uh, reign of Christ will take place. That's what I believe will transpire. Amen to my sister in the back that agrees with me. (laughs) Everybody else can have another opinion, and they can be wrong. We'll be right. (laughs) Who is this one that that will come? Who is this individual that is coming? It's none other than the Christ. Point three of four. um, This probably should have been two messages. (laughs) All of mine should probably be two messages. Uh, The male child that we're introduced to, we've already established. This is Christ, the propitiation of deliverance. He is our propitiation. What do I mean by that? Well, this male child, obviously it is Jesus. Uh, we can ascertain that clearly from the fact that it says in verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, the nation of Israel. Jesus came uh, from the nation of Israel, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. You can compare that to Psalm verse 2. That is a messianic psalm. Uh, that is speaking of, of Jesus who fulfilled that, will rule with a rod of iron. We see this in Revelation 12, 5. The male child is the cross Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He is our propitiation by his blood. In other words, he is the one that satisfies the wrath of God on behalf of those that place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is our propitiation. He is the one who satisfies that completely and utterly and was done so by his blood that was freely shed on the cross for your sin and for my sin. He is our propitiation. Now, here we read in verse 5 of his rule. We, we see that the rod of the iron scepter in the first half of verse 5, we, we see that he is going to reign, that he is going to rule. Praise the Lord. We looked at that last week, the coming of his kingdom. But it's interesting that the, the, the whole story of Jesus is really summed up with his, his birth, his incarnation, and then his ascension. It says that he will rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and his throne. So she, she gave uh, a birth to this child, and then he was caught up by God uh, to his throne. We know that that happened at his ascension. And So in other words, what, what is said here briefly is the whole story of Jesus. Jesus came in, in the flesh, so we see his resurrection and his ascension is ultimately what is being spoken of here because this is what broke the back of Satan. Jesus came in the flesh, He died for our sins, was the propitiation for our sins. It was resurrected, and He was, and then He ascended uh, to, to the throne where He sits as king of kings and Lord of Lords. But we see in verse 10 that in response to this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And uh, they have, uh, should be verse, verse 12, excuse me, therefore rejoice at the reality that he has been thrown down, rejoice. O heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So we see when he is cast out and no longer has limited access, we see that there should be a rejoicing and there's going to be a raging. There's a rejoicing in heaven because our enemy, the accuser, is no longer given limited access, but there's a raging by Satan. And his minions, because they now know their time is short. They now know that, that uh, pretty soon they're, they're, their time is up. And so we see this rejoicing in our lives ought to be the same. We ought to rejoice in the fact that this is a reality that is to come. That this, this truth is, is what we ought to uh, cling to. We rejoice Now, real quickly, the last thing that I want to point you to is there is another group of individuals that that is mentioned. And those are the ones in verse 10 referred to as our brothers, our brothers. These are all believers that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, Those are the conquering people of devotion. Shouldn't that be a good, good term for us as Christians? Shouldn't we be known as the conquering people of devotion? That we live victorious, but we do so obediently. We don't take the victory that has been afforded to us by the blood of Jesus Christ and then just live our lives however we want to live our lives. But that we would be a conquering people of devotion. In fact, God's word says we're more than conquerors. Through him who has set us free. But verse 11, there's so much depth in verse 11. Verse 11 is probably its own sermon in and of itself, but we'll go ahead and cover it so that we can get into chapter 13 uh, next week. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. That's a great verse of scripture to memorize. First, we, we see th- this reality of the conquering people of devotion. We see their trust. Their trust is in the blood of the Lamb. Their, their, their trust is in the sacrificial work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. My trust isn't in myself. My trust is in Jesus. My trust is in the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's, that, that, that's my trust. That ought to be who your trust is in. That ought to be what your trust is in. Your trust is in the blood, the unblemished, perfect blood of the Lamb who was slain uh, to take away the sin to the world. That is who our trust ought to be in. Who are you putting your trust in? Yourself? Somebody else? Is your trust in the fact that you walked an aisle one time? Is your trust in the fact that, that, that you've come to church ever since you were a little kid? Or is your trust in, in the cross of Calvary and the blood that was shed upon it? See, there are many individuals that have walked the aisle, but they're still trusting, they're trusting themselves with each step. I'm trusting myself and, 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 and the self-righteousness of walking an aisle. No, 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 no. It's repentance. It's acknowledging that I'm a sinner apart from God Almighty and I have nothing good in me whatsoever. I'm not even bringing myself to Jesus as if Jesus, this act of me walking an aisle or raising a hand is is some type of work. Don't relegate that to some type of work. It is an admonition that I am a sinner. It is an admonition that I've been in Satan's army up into this point. But right now, I surrender fully, unconditionally. I'm not giving you any terms whatsoever. It is a full surrender because you are the Savior. You are the only one that can save me, and I'm giving everything to you. That's salvation. That's salvation. And if you're putting your eternity on anything other than that, then I implore you to get right with Christ this moment, to repent of your sins and to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But it says that they also conquered by what? The word of their testimony. By the the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Testimony. What is the word of our testimonies? It's the greatness of Jesus. All testimonies involve my life before Christ, my life after Christ. Well, how in the world did you, who your life looked like this, ever get to where now you think and you view the world in these terms and you no longer have some of the chains that you were bound up in over here? How come you're free over here? What happened? Jesus? You see, the word of our testimony is really the word of his testimony because I don't have a testimony apart from Jesus. I don't have a testimony of salvation. I don't have a testimony of redemption. It's all about Jesus, the word of our testimony, what Jesus did for us. The reason why sometimes we don't experience any victory in our lives is because we fail to remember who Jesus Christ has made us and what Jesus Christ has done. We think that Jesus and and Satan are almost on the same paths, and I don't know how this is going to turn out. I'm not sure. I I, I think Jesus is going to win, but I don't know how it's going to turn out. And you fail to realize who you are, and you fail to realize who God is. The word of our testimony. Listen, the accuser that comes before us that tries to say this is who you are and and, and bring up your past. Listen, you've got to understand the word of your testimony. I'm not that anymore. God tells me who I am. I'm a child of, of the King Most High. I've been blood-bought. I've been redeemed. I've been reconciled. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. I've been promised a future. I've been given an eternity. I'm going to co-reign with Christ. I, I'm going to co-worship with all of the saints that have ever existed that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something, devil. You're trespassing on my father's property. Now Flee. Who are you? That's who we need to know. The word of your testimony is powerful. Are you sharing it with the world around you? Are you sharing what Jesus Christ has done in your life? And I'm not just talking about with your lips. Does your life show what it is that Jesus Christ has done for you? The one who bled naked on a cross for you and for me. And if you were the only person that ever lived on this earth, I believe he would have gone to the cross for you just like he did for all of those that have ever existed. Their truth, their testimony, and their treasure, they they love not their life unto death. Does that mean that they love Jesus till they died? No, it means they love Jesus even if they die. You love him even unto death he loved you unto death now I get it he's perfect and we're not and we're going to fail I get that but have you prioritized Jesus Did you say you know what to live is Christ and to die is gain and if it cost me my life The only thing that you're doing is giving me Jesus. You think you're taking my life, but all you're doing is giving me Jesus. You can have this whole world. Just give me Jesus. In the morning when I rise, just give me Jesus. At night, just give me Jesus. When I'm laying on my deathbed, you can have this whole world excuse